Well, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49, and we're going to be continuing again in our series on the life of Joseph. Um, last Sunday, uh, we began to look at some of the final hours of Jacob's life, Jacob being Joseph's father. He's now 147 years young, and as he prepares to finish his journey on the earth, he has, some, he has some dying wishes. He has some words that he wants to share uh, with his family. So last week, we read about J- uh, Jacob calling for Joseph and asking Joseph to come to share his dying wishes. And you remember, he told Joseph that, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. God promised uh, me and, and my descendants a land in Canaan. And one day, we're going to be going back to Canaan, so I want to be buried in Canaan. So he made Joseph promise to bring him back. Then, after that, sometime later, Joseph received word that, that dad was nearing the very end. His time is almost up. And so Joseph went to see his father, and he brought with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, they came, they came to visit with their grandfather. And when they arrived, you might remember that Jacob, he summoned what little strength he had, right? He's nearing the very end of his life. He summons the strength he has left. He sits up in his bed. He leans on his staff, and then he blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, after that, he told Joseph about some land that he wanted to, to give specifically to Joseph. And uh, as I pointed out last week, by, by Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, what he was doing effectively is blessing Joseph in the place of the firstborn son, e- even though Joseph wasn't the firstborn son, right? He's blessing Joseph in that position. Well, that brings us to chapter 49, and we've got one more encounter here with Jacob before he breathes his last. So we're going to jump right in, Genesis chapter 49, uh, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 49 verse 1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. So having already having already pronounced the blessing of the firstborn over Joseph's sons, Jacob now calls for the rest of his sons to come and gather around because he has some words that he wants to share with the rest of his boys. And he tells them that he wants to share with them, uh, share with them what's going to happen to them in the days to come. Now, I got to just say that this is a remarkable passage. This is uh, probably the first long, lengthy portion of prophecy in the, in the Bible spoken through, uh, through a man. So um, also, I want you to look at your Bible. If you have your Bible, just right now, actually look at your Bibles. And I want you to notice something about the structure on the page. Notice that when you get to verse 2, from verse 2 to verse 27, does it look different? Yeah, it, it looks different because from verse 2 to 27, you're dealing with a different, a different type of literature. Jacob is about to speak to his sons in poetic form. This is poetry. And uh, I'm not much of a poet. Um, 
I mean, I can do the roses are red, violets are blue type of thing, but, but, but you know that like a good lyricist, if someone's going to write a song or they're going to write a, a poem, they follow certain mechanics, don't they? There's certain rules that are applied, um, and sometimes it's to deal with the rhythm or the cadence, or sometimes it's about syllable counts, and sometimes it's about rhyme, and there's all these different rules. Well, Jacob is going to be speaking to his sons in a form of Hebraic poetry. And by the way, I am no expert on, I'm not an expert on any type of poetry, but certainly not Hebraic poetry. But what you need to know as we approach these verses is that that because this is poetic, it might be a little like, what? (laughs) Like, what is he saying? Just like in, in songs that you listen today, people will say things and they're using imagery, right? And they're using things that are, are, well, they might make sense to us because they live at the same time, but Jacob is going to use imagery and different uh, analogies that may or may not make sense to someone reading this in 2022. It, it might be a little bit challenging. So that's, I just want to throw that out as we, as we get ready. The words that Joseph is about to speak, they are poetic, all right? But they're not just poetic, and that's the crazy part about this passage. Jacob's words are also prophetic. They're prophetic words. He's making predictions about the future. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Pretty impressive, actually, that a 147-year-old is writing po- poetic, prophetic words on his deathbed, um, no doubt being guided by God. But uh, again, using language and uh, poetic language and imagery, Jacob is going to evaluate his son's lives. He's going to look at them. He's going to look at their character, and he's going to make predictions about the things that are going to take place in the future for them and for their descendants. So Jacob's words are poetic. They are also prophetic, making them somewhat challenging uh, to interpret. Now, by the way, I mean, Pastor Henry and my wife, they'll tell you that drives me crazy because I want to really fully, completely understand every single nuance of the text. It drives me crazy today that I'm going to stand before you and say, I'm not really sure what he means by that. I don't know. And, and, And smarter men than me have wrestled through some of the, some of the nuances of this text, and, and they don't agree. So I'm going to do my best. We're going to work our way through it. But just so you know, it's a challenge, and I'm going to be okay with that. Um, so let's begin looking at what Jacob has to say to his sons as he is now on his, his deathbed. Verse 3, he begins with his oldest son, Reuben. He says, Reuben. You guys know how much I love Reuben, right? Yeah, I love Reuben. So, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Mm, That is some good stuff right there. You can almost picture Reuben at this point saying, this is awesome. You know, he's listening to these words that are being said about him, right? Words like might, power, dignity, which means honor, right? And strength. And he's probably thinking, this is good stuff, right? You guys listening? Hey, boys, you guys listening? Dad's got some really important stuff to say here. You need to be listening to what Dad's saying about me. Me, Reuben, might, strength, dignity, honor. But Dad's not done, right? Dad's not done. 
Verse 4. Verse 4. Reuben. Unstable as water, you will not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. He went up to my couch. Whoa. Oops. Would have been better if he stopped after verse 3, is what Reuben's thinking. That turned south really fast, didn't it? Jacob says, Reuben, you, you were supposed to be the picture of my strength. You were in the position of honor, and you blew it. You blew it. And then Jacob points back to an event that's something that happened decades earlier, probably roughly 40 years earlier. In Genesis chapter 35, we're told that while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Forty years earlier, 40 years earlier, Jacob had just lost, uh, just lost his beloved wife, Rachel, and as he's still grieving the death of Rachel, his son Reuben, the oldest, goes in and sleeps with kind of like his stepmom, really, right? Because she's the mother of some of his half-brothers. So he goes in and he sleeps with Bilhah. And we don't know from that text, because it just says that Israel heard of it. We don't know if Israel disciplined Reuben at that time. We don't know if he even confronted Reuben at that time. But here we are 40 years later, and if there's any question about whether or not Jacob remembers it, he clears it up pretty quick, right? I remember this, Reuben. He says, you are as unstable as water. What's he saying? He's saying, you're unpredictable, you're unpredictable. Can't count on you. You change like, like the circumstances around you. You just, you just meld into your environment. You can't be trusted. You're unstable. And because of that, you have lost the blessing that came with your position. Now, I think that it's worth noting because, again, we want to, like, how, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to my life? I think it's worth noting that the choices that we make can carry consequences with far-reaching effects, can't they? The choices we make carry consequences with far-reaching effects, consequences which may not only impact us, but they might impact our children or even future generations to come. And you might be thinking, well, hold on a second. What about, what about forgiveness? I thought that the Bible taught that there was grace and there's mercy available. And here's the truth. Praise God. Praise God because of his unbelievable grace. Praise God because of his unbelievable mercy. We are, yes, we are able to be forgiven for all our sins. There is nothing that you have done in your life that God will not forgive you for if you come to him. He'll forgive you. He will. But... But that does not mean that you are automatically, automatically free from all the consequences of the choices that you have made, right? We know this is true. Ask anybody, ask anybody who, who has come to Christ and is currently serving time in prison. They're still suffering the consequences of those decisions, right? Ask anybody who's struggling with, with the, the effects of an addiction, and you, you pick the addiction, 
right? There are effects that, that, that linger and impact not only us, but maybe our children and our children's children and future generations. Reuben and his descendants lost the blessing and the authority that came with being the firstborn because of a decision that he made 40 years earlier. He lost the position of honor and authority and strength. Well, after speaking to Reuben, Jacob then turned to his second and his third sons, Simeon and Levi. Verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. They're all brothers, right? But there's something unique about these two. He links them together. He says, they are weapons of violence, are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men, and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I just love a good blessing, don't you? (laughs) Jacob's blessing his sons. So far, this is amazing. Um, Jacob speaks to these two boys, and he he pairs these two together, and he says, these are violent men. Their hearts are filled with anger and cruelty. Now, no doubt, Jacob is remembering the tragic events that took place in Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, uh, when they were dwelling near the land of Shechem, Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by one of the men of Shechem. And, and, and rightfully, so, rightfully so, Simeon and Levi are angry, right? They have every right. This is an incredibly uh, horrific thing that's happened to their sister. They have every right to be angry about this. But in their quest for justice, okay, they became so consumed by their anger that they were no longer satisfied with, you know, simply, simply holding the one person who did this accountable for what he had done. Instead, they tricked all the men of Shechem. It's, it's a crazy story. Go read it, Genesis 34. They said, hey, we're, we're Jews. And uh, the men of Shechem wanted to marry, intermarry with the Jews. And he said, well, we're Hebrews, and, and we have this deal with the Lord that all the men in our tribe have to be circumcised. And they said, so here's the deal. We'll, we'll gladly, we'll let our daughters marry your men, but here's the deal. All of your men have to be circumcised. And so the men, surpri- I don't, I mean, surprising to me, but the men of Shechem said, sure, we'll go along with this. So all the men of Shechem are circumcised so that they can marry with these Hebrews. And then it says that on the third day, when the men were very sore, <laughs> they, they said... They said, here's the perfect opportunity to get our revenge. And Simeon and Levi led an attack, and they killed every single man in Shechem. Killed them all. And and not only that, they looted the city. They, They took everything they had from the city and took it as their own. And Jacob says, Jacob says, they're violent. They're violent. I don't want my soul to come into their council. And I can tell you something. You don't want your soul to come into the council of an angry and a person with uncontrolled anger either, do you? You're not going to get good counsel from somebody who is raging with anger and violence. He says, I don't want that. He says, I don't want my glory, my name to be joined to their company. In fact, after that happened, Jacob said, we got to leave town, man. You've made, you've made me a stench 
in the land. Everybody in the land is going to hate us because of what you two have done. God's word is filled, filled with warnings about uncontrolled anger, the dangers of uncontrolled anger. In Psalm 37, David said, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Well, that certainly is the case in what they did, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that anger is what? It's the underlying sin that leads to murder, right? Yeah. James chapter 1, we're told that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Proverbs chapter 16, we read, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city, better than Simeon and Levi, right? In Galatians chapter 5, I love what Paul says. Paul says that, that fits of anger, fits of anger, that's a work of the flesh. That's your sin nature fighting with you. But the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Self-control. Brothers and sisters, uncontrolled anger is very serious. It's very serious. And if you're someone you know, who's sitting here and you know that that's something that I struggle with, you need to take it serious. Because the Scriptures say that it leads to evil. Jesus said it leads to murder. That's what uncontrolled anger leads to. And so if you're somebody who's struggling with anger, you need to treat it as seriously as it is. That means you need to confess it to God. Talk to God. Say, man, I, I've got this issue with anger. I need help. Seek, seek through his word. Study what does God's word say about anger? What does God's word say about self-control? And if you need to talk to someone, talk to someone. You need to see a professional counselor, see a professional counselor. But whatever you do, do not ignore do not ignore anger that is building in your heart. It does not accomplish anything good. It does not lead to the righteousness of God. Well, verse seven, Jacob says, Jacob says of Simeon and Levi, he says, I'm gonna divide them. I'm gonna divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And when the tribes finally settled in the land, that's exactly what happens to them. Simeon and Levi are divided and they are scattered in Israel. Simeon, he ends up dwelling in the land, in the midst of the land that was given to Judah. He's like uh, just there down in, in the lower southern end of Israel, mixed in in Judah. And eventually, over time, Simeon ends up being totally absorbed into all the other uh, tribes of Israel. And Levi, Levi is really interesting. Levi is literally scattered in Israel, intentionally uh, by God, and it actually ends up being a blessing for Levi. The tribe of Levi ends up being chosen for the priesthood in Israel. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, God spoke to Aaron and the Levites, and he said this. He said, you will have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. And then he says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And so instead of Levi receiving a portion of the land, when, when they come into the land, this is hundreds of years later, by the way. Can I just stress that? That Jacob is saying all this hundreds of years before it actually comes to be. This, this whole prophecy is un unbelievable. 
But when they get into the land, Levi was scattered. Instead of receiving a portion of the land, they were divided amongst 48 cities that were scattered all over Israel so that, so that there would be a, a representative of the Lord serving in the role of priesthood in all the cities of Israel. And by the way, this is the tribe that Moses and Aaron are going to be from. Well, three kids down, nine to go. And we're going to go faster as we get going, I promise. But if you're one of Jacob's remaining nine sons, I mean, honestly, you're sitting here and you got to be thinking at that point, you know, Dad, I know we came for the blessing and all, but I'm good. I'm good. It, it's, it's good. You know what? Actually, Dad, let me show you how generous I am. Why don't you give my blessing to my brother over here? You know, this is, I, I, God's been very good to me. I, I'm good. So, but that's not how it works, is it? That's not how it works. Jacob continues, and now he turns his attention to Judah. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Now, by the way, Judah, the name Judah, anybody know what the name Judah means? Anybody? It's right there in the verse. Praise. Praise. That's what Judah means. And so he actually is saying, praise? Your brothers will praise you. Yeah, you're going to live up to your name, praise. You're going to live up to your name, Judah. So he says, uh, uh, yes, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. The first thing I want to point out about Judah, um, and uh, we're probably going to spend more time on Judah, just so you know, we're going to spend more time on Judah than, than any of the other brothers. But the first thing I want to point out about Judah is that Judah is a picture of redemption. You know, as we've made our way through this series, we have seen Judah has made some pretty big mistakes, right? But we've seen transformation in Judah. You see, you remember that Judah, he's the, he's the brother. Remember when, when his brother, when all the brothers, they were getting ready to kill Joseph, Judah steps up and says, no, that's a bad idea. Here's a better idea. Why don't we sell him away as a slave? Let's sell Joseph away as a slave, and that way we'll be totally rid of him. We don't have to deal with this, you know, this little brat anymore, but we'll also make a few bucks, right? We'll be rich, he'll be miserable, and, and all is well. That was Judah's plan. And Judah's also the one that, that we read about in chapter 38. We actually went through chapter 38 early on in this series. When Judah left his father's household, right, and he goes and he marries a Canaanite woman. He marries a Canaanite woman. They have some children. His children die. And then it gets worse. Judah ends up sleeping with what he thinks is a prostitute, only to find out later that it's actually his daughter-in-law, and she's pregnant. This is Judah. This is Judah. This guy has made so many bad choices, right? But you'll also remember that when we got to chapter 44, we got to chapter 44, it was Judah when Joseph was testing his brothers, remember? And he sets up Benjamin and he arrests Benjamin. He said, I'm going to keep Benjamin now as a slave here in Egypt. It was Judah who said, no, let me take his place. He stepped forward as a willing substitution for Benjamin. And in that way, Judah was foreshadowing one of his future descendants. He was foreshadowing the Messiah that would come from the line of Judah, Jesus, the Messiah, right? Who willingly 
became a substitute in the place of all mankind dying on the cross for our sins. Amazing stuff. Amazing picture of redemption. And so in verse 8, Jacob says, your brothers are going to praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah, you are going to be strong, he says. You're going to conquer your enemies. And we know, and we know as we read the rest of scripture, we know that, that under the rule of King David, who by the way is from the line of Judah, that under David's rule, the enemies of Israel were conquered and a time of peace was experienced in all of Israel. Pretty amazing stuff. Verse 9, Jacob then said, Judah is a lion's cub. I think some of your translations might say a whelp. Uh, I saw a whelp and I was like, I don't even know what a whelp is. So Judah is a lion's cub and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? You see in the, poet, the poetry here in, in what Jacob is saying? He's using poetic imagery here, and he's saying that Judah is like a lion. He's like the king of the beast, a symbol of power and authority. And I love this verse, but in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, amazing verse, we're told that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so now continuing on with this blessing, in verse 10, Jacob declares, he, he goes on to declare that kings are going to come from the line of Judah. From this tribe, there will be kings. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, I need you, I need you to stop and just think about something for a moment, okay? What, what makes this whole passage, this whole prophetic passage so amazing is this. Jacob, Jacob is predicting that the tribe of Judah will be the tribe which brings forth the kings of Israel, okay? And you're like, okay, cool, that's fine. He's making a prediction that it's gonna bring forth kings, great. You know, he could have been right, could have been wrong, right? But he's predicting this literally hundreds, hundreds of years before Israel is even a nation, okay? It would be like somebody in, in England back in the 1700s turning to their son and saying, Billy Bob? I don't think they called the kids Billy Bob in England in, in the 1700s. That doesn't seem like a very British name but we're going to go with it. Billy Bob, our family is going to settle in the Americas one day. And from you will come the presidents of the United States of America, you know? We haven't even been a nation for 400 years, right? And the Israelites are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then after that, they're going to come out of Egypt. They're going to wander in the desert. Then there's going to be the whole conquest into the land. And eventually, There'll be judges, and then there's going to be kings. And, and Jacob, all these hundreds of years before, says, and from you will come the kings of our people. What? I mean, I'm sorry. If you're not going like, wow, I don't know. I don't know. Are you awake? <laughs> Seriously, this is amazing. This is a just absolutely amazing predictions that are happening here. 
I'm so lost in my notes, you know? <laughs> but it's amazing because at this time, right? At this time, they are just a moderately sized family, right? It's like the patriarch, he's got his 12 sons, he's got some grandsons, maybe a few great-grandsons. They're just a moderately large family that's dwelling in a foreign land. And he's predicting that, this, that it is from this son right here that the kings of our people are gonna come from. And so Jacob says in verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now a scepter is what? It's a royal staff that the king would hold in his hand as a symbol of his authority. And Jacob says that that authority will not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him. That's the way the, uh, the ESV translates it, tribute. And the word that's translated as tribute there is in the Hebrew, it's the word shiloh, which can be translated differently depending on, on the context. In many translations, and some of you might have this in, in your hands, like the New American Standard Bible or the King James or other translations, they translate this as the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet until Shiloh comes. And most commentators and most rabbinical scholars agree that Shiloh here is a name for and a reference to the coming Messiah. Jacob says that the kings of Israel will, not, uh, will, will come from Judah, and, and they will come from Judah until a final king comes, who, according to verse 10, shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. And who is that final king? It was Jesus, right? The Messiah, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Amazing stuff. Verse 11, he continues, still talking about Judah, and he says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture, his robes, his clothes, in the blood of grapes. So when you first read that, when you first read that, at least for me, when I read that, I'm picturing the, the whole the donkey, and then I'm seeing the, the, the robes being drenched in, in, in the blood of grapes, and, and, and we get images in our mind. Right? We get images of our mind, maybe of the triumphal entry, Jesus coming in on a donkey, right? And prophesied, by the way, by Zechariah. But, um, and then we, we can picture maybe the blood of, that was spilled by Christ and staining his garments as he was sacrificed. And that sounds great, but I don't really think that's what he's talking about here. But it preaches really well, so, so we could focus on that. But Actually, what he's doing here is he's using poetic language once again, and what he's doing is he's describing the wealth and the prosperity that's going to be experienced in the tribe of Judah. Looking further down the line, he's describing the conditions that are going to exist under the rule of Israel's future king, the Messiah. You see, wine and grapes, they were symbols of prosperity. They were symbols of prosperity. If you had a lot of wine, you had a lot of grapes, you were, you were prosperous. And he's describing a time where the, where the wine and the grapes are flowing to the point where you could tie your donkey to the vine. You could tie your donkey to the choice vine, and you don't even have to worry about if the donkey's going to break the vine. You don't have to worry about the donkey. What's a donkey going to do if you tie him up to a, a vine full of grapes? What's a donkey going to do? He's going to eat the grapes, right? The choice grapes. It's okay. 
We've got so many grapes. We've got so much wine in this land. You could tie your donkey to the grapevine, right? We have so much wealth in this land that you can wash your clothes in the blood of grapes. Wine and grapes flow like water in the land of Judah. Wine and grapes will flow like water under the rule and the reign of the future king, the Messiah. Looking forward to that, are you? You're looking forward to life under the reign, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth? I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. It's going to be pretty amazing. I'm going to eat a lot of grapes. It's going to be pretty amazing. Verse 12, he says, his eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. Oh, what a beautiful description of, of, of a handsome fella. <laughs> dark, dark eyes like wine with teeth as white as milk. That's a good compliment. If you want to compliment your, your spouse, just say, man, your teeth are like milk. I love it. <laughs> it's beautiful. But once again, he's, just, he's using poetic imagery to describe just the general sense of, of health and beauty that's going to flood this, this tribe. You can see it in their countenance. These people are so blessed, so prosperous. It's going to be amazing. What an amazing prophetic and, and poetic blessing that Jacob is pouring out on his fourth son, Judah. But what an amazing picture of redemption, isn't it? You think about all that Judah's done, and this is the guy from whom the Messiah is going to come? Unbelievable, isn't it? It's just great, great stuff. Well, that brings us to verse 13, and we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace now as we start to move through these, these next several sons. We're going to turn our attention now to Zebulun. Verse 13 says, Zebulun will dwell at the shores of the sea, and he will become a haven for ships, and his border will be at Sidon or Sidon. Now, if you look at the map, you're probably saying, uh, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. He, he's landlocked. Do you see that? Zebulun is not on the border of the, of the sea. He's not near the, the Mediterranean Sea, and he's not near the Sea of Galilee. So, so what's going on here? Did, J, did Jacob mess up? Is something wrong? Well, this is one of those things that just drives me crazy, right? Because I want to be able to just say, oh, well, this is what it is, okay? This is the answer, and you're going to say, oh, well, that's great. That's perfect. But if I did that, I'd be lying. Um, because what this is, is this is something that's puzzled uh, biblical scholars and commentators ever since they started reading it. They're looking at it, and they're saying, I don't, I don't completely understand. Because we know that this is a prophetic and poetic word from the Lord, so what's going on here? Well, it's possible. It's possible that this just hasn't been fulfilled yet. Maybe this is going to be fulfilled under the reign of the Messiah one day. Maybe, maybe Zebulun's tribe, when they gather back in the land, maybe that's where they'll be, surfing on the Mediterranean. I, I don't know. I don't know. But there is one other possibility. I'll just throw it at you, and you can either accept it or reject it. That's up to you. One possibility is that maybe Jacob's words are meant to just convey how Zebulun is going to be blessed by their proximity to the sea that they're going to have access to both the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, situated nicely right between them. And not only that, if you visit the land of Israel, you'll see that that land with, that they ended up possessing is actually situated right on the Jezreel Valley. And so they actually controlled a major trade route that would run from the Mediterranean Sea through the Jezreel Valley up to the Sea of Galilee and then on to, to Damascus. So it is possible just a possibility that maybe what Jacob is describing is just the way that Zebulun is going to benefit 
from the sand, uh, from the from being in proximity to both the Mediterranean and to the Sea of Galilee. And to go along with this idea, there are some words in Deuteronomy that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 33, verse 19. Deut- uh, Moses said this about Zebulun and Issachar. He said, they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. So maybe they're dr- somehow they're drawing from all this, uh, these, these availability from the seas and are making or being blessed by their proximity uh, to the sea. But that's just, a, that's just a possibility. Are you okay with that? Can we, can we live with that? Maybe that's what he meant. Verse 14, moving on to Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey, <laughs> crouching beneath, uh, between rather the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Israel, uh, Issachar is a, a strong donkey. Now, in our culture, this would not really be a blessing, would it? My son, you are a donkey. (laughs) That is not how we bless our children. But in that culture, a donkey was what? It was a strong, hardworking animal that was able to carry heavy burdens, right? What a blessing it was if you have donkeys. We actually saw that earlier in in our study. Remember, Joseph's brothers were being arrested in Egypt, and all they were really worried about was what's going to happen to our donkeys, you remember that? In the book of First Chronicles, um, oh, by the way, Zebulun also, you can see that they, they, they ended up settling in the land of the Jezreel Valley. Uh, it's just an incredibly fertile land. It explains why they were just content to settle down. We're here in a, in a good land and just work in the land. But there's something really cool that I, uh, that's written in the book of First Chronicles that I want to point out about the, the tribe of Issachar. In First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, we read this, of Issachar, there were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Listen to that verse. Of Issachar, there were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Boy, don't we need that today. Don't we need that Today, what a blessing it is to be surrounded, to surround yourself with men and women who have the gift of wisdom and discernment, who are able to look at the culture and to be able to look at what's going on around them and say, this is how we ought to proceed. This is what would bring God honor and glory. This is how we're going to move forward. David had these types of people at his disposal, and they came from the tribe of Issachar. And we should be praying, by the way, praying that God would give us those types of people. Pray, we, it was just prayed earlier today. Pray over the election, right? Pray that God would put those types of people in office in our land. Wouldn't that be amazing? People who understand the times and know how we ought to move forward. But also pray that you'd be that type of person, right? Pray that God would give you wisdom, give you discernment to know how to best reach out and love your neighbors and point people to Jesus. Man. We need that today. Well, having now spoken to all the sons of Leah, he's now going to turn to Dan, one of the sons of Bilhah. Verse 16, Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. (laughs) That's great. He's a snake. (laughs) Once again, Jacob is using a play on words here. He says, Dan whose name means 
to judge. He says, judge, you're going to be the judge of the people. You're going to judge your people. Now, it is interesting to note that in the scriptures, in the book of Judges, one of Israel's best known judges came from the tribe of Dan. One of the, one of the, devote, in the book of Judges, there's a lot of real estate devoted to talking about this particular judge. Anybody know who that judge is? Wow. I want to play Bible trivia with you guys. <laughs> it's, Dan, uh, it's, not, it's Dan. No, it's Samson. Samson, the mighty warrior Samson, is from the tribe of Dan. And boy, wasn't he a tricky, tricky judge. Remember all the games he played with the, with the Philistines, setting foxes' tails on fire and sending them in? He was a nuisance, right, to the Philistines while he was alive. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's Israel's probably one of, his, one of the more famous judges of, of Israel. And this tribe... Uh, Dan, while they originally, you can see on the map, while they originally settled along the coast of the Mediterranean, they ended up being so harassed by the Philistines and unable to drive out the Philistines that they ended up packing up their belongings and moving north. They moved all the way to the north of Israel, above the Sea of Galilee, and they actually settled in one of the most beautiful parts that you'll visit um, in Israel if you go there with us in January of 2024. Shameless plug there to come with us to Israel. But uh, this is also the area, by the way, in the northern uh, kingdom. This is where Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, during the time of the divided kingdom, this is where Jeroboam set up one of the golden calves was in the land of Dan. And they led the people of Israel away from the worship of God and into idol worship. So Dan has a pretty, um, yeah, kind of an ugly, ugly history. Verse 18, Jacob says, I... Wait for your salvation, O Lord. Now, these words right here, to the Lord, could be in response to what he's just got done saying about his other sons and about Dan. Or the way I read it and the way I like to see this is is Jacob is pronouncing a blessing, being led by God right now to pronounce his blessing with all its prophetic, uh, you know, predictions. And I believe in this moment he stops and he says, oh, I wait for your salvation, oh Lord. Just showing his dependency. He is communicating to his sons, but he's being led by God. And he says, I wait for your salvation, oh Lord. And what's kind of cool, I think, in this verse is the word for salvation. Because the word for salvation here is the Hebrew word, Yeshua. And uh, I think that's fascinating. That, that here he is in the midst of this prophecy, and he says, I wait for your Yeshua, O Lord. Now, Jacob, he doesn't know necessarily that one day the, the Messiah that's going to come is going to be named Yeshua. By the way, Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus, okay? And so you're thinking, well, then why do we call him Jesus? Because Jesus is the Greek translation of his Hebrew name, Yeshua, so the Bible that you read and you hold your hand, it's written in Greek, and so it's, he's called Jesus. But his Hebrew name is Yeshua. So he calls out to the future Messiah, not even realizing he's actually saying the Messiah's name right there in that verse, Jesus, Yeshua, salvation. Pretty cool. Well, after Dan, Jacob then turns to Gad. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. 
Gad is he's uh, one of the clans that ends up settling on the eastern side of the Jordan as the nation was entering the promised land. Um, and because they were situated there along the edge of the land, they were more susceptible to raids coming in from their neighbors, the, the, uh, the Ammonites. The Ammonites could easily cross the border back and forth, whereas the other tribes were bordered naturally by the Sea of, uh, excuse me, by the Mediterranean Sea, and you also had the Jordan River. Gad didn't have that. And so it was easy for raiding parties to come in and out of their land, and they fought constantly to protect their land. So that's the land of Gad. Verse 20, Asher's food will be rich, and he will yield royal delicacies. Now, Asher's name literally means blessed or happy. In the tribe of Asher, they settled in just an incredibly fertile part of the land north of the Carmel Range along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a land that was known to have an abundance of, of olive oil. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. By the way, can you just appreciate how difficult it is to try to figure out, like, what was he actually pointing out about these people? Like, they're, they seem to be wealthy or, uh, yeah, he's, Naphtali's a doe let loose, running around through the land that bears beautiful fawns. Other translations say that bears beautiful words. So some think that they were maybe known for their poetry and they, they were good writers. But it is interesting that Naphtali settled on the land along the western shores of the Sea of Galilee that stretched all the way to the northern part of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, Isaiah says this about Naphtali along with the area of Zebulun. He says that they are the, uh, they're referred to as the Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. And coincidentally, this is the area where Jesus spent the majority of his time on earth teaching the, the message of the kingdom of heaven. This is where Jesus walked around teaching the gospel. Uh, most of his time was spent in the area of Naphtali, the uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. And I, I, it's hard for me to picture anybody, as I think Al said this earlier too, was there ever a better uh, a more beautiful teacher as far as the words he shared than Jesus. That's the land of Naphtali. Well, that brings us now to Joseph. We got two sons left, okay? Two sons. And it should come as no surprise, no surprise that Jacob has more to say to Joseph than any of his other sons. As we make our way down through these blessings, we can see, we can see that that two sons really become prominent in this whole passage, right? Judah, lots of said about Judah, and lots that said about Joseph. And that's because Judah became the tribe that Jacob pours out the blessing of, of power and authority. This is the tribe where the kings are going to come from. But Joseph is the tribe that receives the blessing of the firstborn, the double portion from his father. He gave him two, two shares in the land, actually. Verse 22, Jacob says of Joseph, Joseph is a fruitful bough or branch, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. He's, he's described as being fruitful. And we've seen that as we've read through this whole story, right? He's like the man in Psalm chapter one, verse three. You guys know that, that Psalm, right? Where everything that this man does prospers. That's Joseph, isn't it? Joseph has continued to trust God. He's continued to follow God no matter what types of trials have, have come his way. And his life has been fruitful. 
to the point where his, his bowels run over the wall, right? He's been a blessing not only to himself, but to everybody has been blessed. The whole land has been blessed because of Joseph. And when they settled in the land, you can see on the map that Joseph, he gets two portions. He gets the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Half of Manasseh settled, settled on the eastern side of the Jordan, half settled on the, on the western side of the Jordan. And by the way, over time, those flip. Manasseh looks bigger there, right? When they were coming in, Manasseh was bigger, but Ephraim ends up growing and becoming the largest of the tribes in the north. So verse 23, Jacob continues. He says, the archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and they harassed him severely. And no doubt, Jacob is describing all of the persecution that has been sent at Joseph through the years, right? He was attacked by his brothers. He was attacked by Potiphar's wife. Joseph was no doubt attacked spiritually and emotionally by Satan. Man, Joseph has been attacked, attacked, attacked. And yet through it all, verse 24 says, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. He did not break. He remained fruitful. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, Jacob says. The hands of my God have sustained my son. That's what Jacob's saying. And look at the names that Jacob uses for God here. He calls him the mighty one of Jacob, right? The shepherd. God is our shepherd. What's a famous psalm that says that? Psalm 23, yeah. He's also the stone of Israel. God is our rock, Psalm 18. Now in verses 25 to 26, Jacob is gonna pronounce this blessing upon blessing over his beloved son, Joseph. And I want you just to notice, look, pay attention to how many times he uses the word bless or blessing here in these verses. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they, may all these blessings be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Wow. I think that's what the rest of the boys were hoping they were going to get when they showed up that day. But the blessing, the double blessing, the blessing of the firstborn is here on Joseph. What an extraordinary blessing on him. Verse 27 as Jacob now is going to address his youngest son, Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. <laughs> In the morning, devouring the prey, and at the evening, dividing the spoil. <laughs> oh, man, well, the blessings didn't last long, I guess. We're back to this. As Jacob turns to his, his youngest son, it's a little bit surprising, isn't it? I mean, because we've, we've talked as we've been through the series of how much Jacob just loved, loved, loved Benjamin. And so we would expect him to be like, Benjamin, after Joseph, Benjamin's the best. And we're going to say all kinds of amazing things about Benjamin. But he doesn't. He just says he's a ravenous wolf. Now, as we read the rest of the Old Testament, it's a little surprising because, you know, when the tribe was divided and, and, and 10 tribes went north in Israel, Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed with Judah in the south. He was faithful to David, to David the line of David. In, in Israel. So, a little surprising, but 
there is maybe a glimpse into the ravenous nature of Benjamin when we look at some of his more famous descendants. And I'm just going to give you a couple. One is King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a Benjamite. And King Saul, you know this, this guy was consumed like a rabid wolf with killing one man. Do you remember who that man is? David. Yeah. He was a ravenous wolf consumed with It drove him mad, didn't it? Yeah. And then there's another Saul that is a Benjamite in the New Testament, kind of a famous guy. Saul of Tarsus was a Benjamite. And you might remember that Saul, before he came to Christ, right, what was Saul doing? He was persecuting the the, the followers of Jesus, persecuting the, the line of the Messiah. Amazing, isn't it? Those are two of the, those violent uh, wolves of Benjamin. So anyway, that concludes the blessings of, of Jacob on his 12 sons. Some are clearer than others, right? Some it's like, wow, we can totally see you know, what he's talking about. Others it's like, I don't know what he means about Naphtali being a fawn or a doe. I don't, I'm not really, sh- not really sure. Verse 28, we'll go through this pretty quickly. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the land of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the uh, the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Basically, he's just saying the same thing he said to Joseph last week, right? He's saying, take me back to, my, to, my, to the land that God has promised. Take me back there. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. That's it the patriarch, the last of the the major patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's sojourn was complete. And in the end, he blessed his children and he left them with the confident hope that God was going to one day bring them back to the land of promise. And, you know, the fact that this whole thing was recorded in poetry, I think this helped them to be able to recall the words of their father. It's not very poetic to us because we don't speak Hebrew. We're reading it in English and some of it gets lost, right? But to them, this was a poem that they memorized and they passed it on to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And this would be a major source of encouragement in the coming years. Why? Because these people were going to become slaves in the land of Egypt. For hundreds of years, they would be enslaved. And they would remember over and over and over. Don't forget what great, great, great grandpa Jacob said. We're going back. We're going back. Kings are going to come from this line over here, right? This line over here, they're going to be blessed, blessed, blessed. We're going to be a bunch of does running around in a field. (laughs) But, But this was a blessing. He left them with hope for the future. He left them with the truth about what God had promised and what God had promised God was going to come through on. That's an amazing thing. And just as Jacob passed on hope and truth to the next generation, who passed it on to the next generation, who passed it on to the next generation, we have a responsibility to pass on the hope and the truth to the next generation, right? We need to share the hope and truth of what God has promised with our children 
and encourage them to pass it on to their children and their children and their children. Amen? Amen. This is our calling. We need to do this. Next week, we're going to conclude this whole series on the life of Joseph. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 50. But for today, I just want to close by reading a few words from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7. You can turn there or the words will be up on the screen either way. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7 say this. I uh, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's our, cha- that's our task. That's what we are called to do. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for your word. Thank you that these words, not just the words that you spoke through your servant Jacob to his sons, words that would have been an incredible encouragement to them in the, in the years to come. God, we thank you for all the words that are contained here in, in your holy scriptures, the Bible. We thank you that we have these words to draw hope from that there are promises in here. Some promises have already been fulfilled and some promises are still yet to be fulfilled. And God, we know that you will make good on every single one. And so God, I pray that like Jacob, that you would fill your people with a heart that is devoted to sharing the good news and the hope with the next generation and the generation after that. And God, we pray that when you return, and we know you will, that more and more people will be ready to receive you, be ready to to meet you because they've put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who will rule and reign the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. We love you, Jesus, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.